1903, Daniel Burnham, with the help of a, another man named Edward Bennett, authored a book entitled The Plan of Chicago. The book recommended that the city of Chicago begin preparing for the future through widening the streets, adding parks, expanding railroad and harbor facilities, and building new civic buildings. The population of the city in 1900 was 1.7 million, and it was steadily growing. In only 20 years, the population had increased by over a million residents. The city certainly needed to be prepared. Burnham and his book were at the forefront of what we now call city planning, but 120 years ago, this was a, a new thing. And in his plans, Burnham was most adamant about improving the lakefront and making it public. Now, if you've been to Chicago, that you'll see that there are 29 miles of lakefront property. 25 miles of those 29 are public-accessed property. The beaches, entertainment venues, and public parks in Chicago owe Daniel Burnham a debt of gratitude. Burnham also recognized the future growth of the automobile, so he advocated for a regional highway system. He believed that train terminals needed large improvements. And because of Chicago's placement on Lake Michigan and then having canals and, and different ways to get to the Mississippi River, Chicago was the most important Midwest city in the country. Simply put, Daniel Burnham was ahead of his time. He was able to see the need that the city had, and more importantly, he gave solutions for how to continue to advance in the 20th century. Unfortunately, he died in 1912, just a few years after he presented his proposal to the city, but his legacy lives on. Groups in the city promoted his work, and in 1915, Mayor William Hale used this plan as a way to grow the city and expand it for the future. Now, if you've been to Chicago, you've seen that some of these plans have, have been played out, they've been implemented. Even though he advocated, though, for wider city streets, he believed that people would only use cars to go out to the countryside on the weekends. He never imagined that cars would become a part of everyone's life. And because of that, the city abandoned most of his initial advice because the roads simply weren't wide enough to accommodate that many cars. The plan was also based on a large influx of tax money coming in. But you know what happened in 1929? It was the stock market crash, and all throughout the 30s, we had the Great Depression. Enthusiasm for his ideas failed with those. But the city continued over the years to implement some of his ideas in this 1903 book. Building bridges, growing the city highways, expanding parks. And if you look at the city of Chicago, and, and if you look at Daniel Burnham, you'll see that he didn't have just good ideas. He knew how to implement those good ideas. And he said something that the city leaders in Chicago still say to this day. Make no little plans. That drove Burnham to not only have big ideas, but to see them happen. But as you know and I know, not all big plans are good plans. In the passage that we just read, the people decided to build a city and a tower, not to show off the greatness of God, but to show off the ingenuity of the people. They were smart, they were industrious, they were capable of building something that had never been done before. But like Burnham's vision of Chicago, not all plans are worth following. In Genesis 11, we see a vision and a plan for something that will have an impact, both good and bad, for the rest of humanity and after. Now some of you may have read this and thought, 
back to what we read just a, a chapter before, and you may have stopped in verse 1, and you said, wait a minute, what about chapter 10, verse 5, that says this, from, there, from these, the coastlands, people spread in their lands, each with their own language by their clans in their nations. See, Noah's sons, according to Genesis chapter 10, descended, the, the descendants spread throughout the earth with each their own language. And then in chapter 11, verse 1, we read something that seems a little contradictory. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now how can this be? Now there are people who will discard the rest of the Bible because they see some supposed contradiction, and we'll address that. But we shouldn't discard the Bible for this. As Christians, yes, this sounds like circular logic and circular reasoning, but the fact is, is that if there is a, a supposed contradiction in Scripture, it's not found in the Bible, it's found in our interpretation of it. See, if we begin that the Bible is God's inerrant word, that it has no mistakes, it is, the mistakes are not found here, the mistakes are found here. passage like this, though, does give us some trouble, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe you've had a conversation and someone says, well, wait, here's a contradiction right here. But is that true? The first thing that we need to consider is kind of simple, but the idea is, is that for 2,000 years that we've had, uh, uh, the New Testament at least, but we've had the completed canon for a little less than that, the Old Testament, Genesis, has been written for a lot longer than that, you would think that the contradictions would have been corrected. That some tr translator or manuscript writer would have said, hmm, that doesn't make sense, we're going to correct this. Hasn't happened. We can see through the original manuscripts, or at least the, the, the oldest manuscripts, that what we have in our Bible today is what was written. And the fact of the matter is, and this may sound strange to you, but one of the proofs that Christianity is true are difficult passages like this. A professor of mine in college who, who was a nominal Christian, if there is such a, a one, he said this. He said the reason why Islam was able to spread throughout Africa and the Middle East so much is because they didn't have the Trinity to explain. And if you think about it, that's true. And it's a whole lot easier to talk about one God is Allah and that's it, rather than saying Jesus is God, the Son is God, or the Son, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and the Father is God. One of the proofs that Christianity is true is that we would never in a million years put anything like this into our religion if we were to create one from the ground up. None of this makes sense to our flesh. It's not easy to understand, but it's because we have these things it shows that the Christian faith is true. So I think the idea that Genesis 11.1 1 and 10.5 contradict each other, we can ignore that, but that still doesn't answer the question that plagues us. What's going on here? Something else to consider. And this has taken me a long time to figure this out. The Bible is not written in chronological order. That the Bible is not even published, and the order of the books are not even in chronological order. They're pulled together. The, the large scale of picture of the Bible is that the books were not positioned in chronological order, but rather genre. It's why in the New Testament you have the four Gospels together. It's why in the Old Testament you have uh, the first five books, the Pentateuch, are there. You have the law, then you have the, the prophets, and you have minor prophets and major prophets. You have the poetry, and you have all of those things are, are, are separated together. So if you read through the entire Bible, you'll quickly realize that things don't follow in chronological order. You'll see something in Kings that happens in another book. 
and this funnel downs into passages too. You see this happening in the Gospels. If you read the Gospels, maybe you're frustrated with the fact that, wait a minute, this happened in, in, in this book of, of one of the Gospels, and then this happened somewhere else. That doesn't make sense because it seems like two different times. That's not the purpose of the Gospels. The purpose of these books written here are not to give you an exhaustive, exact timeline of exactly what happened at the moment that it happened. Now, let's apply that, the idea that the, the Bible is God's inerrant word, but often these, these facts are, are not put in chronological order because that's not the main idea. The main idea is to point us to Christ. So let's apply that to what we see in Genesis 10 and 11. Let's assume that in Genesis 9, chapter 1, which says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, let's assume that the people obeyed this. Let's assume that. We would like to believe that, that humanity would have seen what God did and followed, that they would have seen the greatness of God, the judgment of God coming down, the restoration that God provided. Let's, let's hope, we hope, that the people would obey God at that point, that their eyes would be opened. This is the exact same hope that we would have for Adam and Eve to not sin when God gave them all that they needed and yet they wanted more. It's the same hope that we had for Noah and his sons that when they came off the ark, that humanity would be different. And in reality, what we're hoping for is we're hoping that these people can do what only Christ can do. And they all failed. Now, I've met a number of people, and I'm sure you have too, people who say, you know, I would believe God if he would just give me a sign. If he would just prove himself to me, I would believe him. They want a miracle. They want a sign from the the sky. They want a big, deep, booming voice. They believe that if they had some undeniable proof that God exists, then they would believe God and trust him. The fact is they wouldn't, no matter what God would do for them. And I can say that with confidence because I can look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis and see that being played out on every single page. They got signs and wonders. My goodness, they got signs and wonders, and they still refused. And the passage that we're looking at today shows that God's plan, and here's where it ties into that supposed contradiction, God's plan was for people to spread and populate the earth. Why? Well, think this. It would be a lot easier for us to be a, a functional church family if we all lived within walking distance of one another, right? Makes sense. We wouldn't have to drive to your house. You wouldn't have to drive to mine. I could see you every day as I'm leaving my house to go to work. We could be a, a community. So it makes sense to us that everybody should have stayed together in order to grow that group. But here's where you need to understand the Bible as one unfolding story that connects all together. And if you s neglect to see that Jesus is the main subject of all scripture, you will miss the purpose of Genesis 9-1, or you'll believe that God was merely concerned with populating a planet. In a second, not even a second, God could have transported every, every person to different parts of the globe, and he could have populated the earth that way, but instead he told humanity to do it. Why? God does everything for his glory, and his plan all along was for his son to bring the Father and the Son and the Spirit glory through the sacrificial death of Jesus and his resurrection. And 2,000 years later, God's glory shines when Christians sacrificially give of their time, their energy, and even their lives to share the gospel with people who've never heard it. Listen, you've had missionaries come and speak to you. Don't you get choked up when you hear their stories? 
someone who has left the safety and comfort and financial wealth of the United States behind to go to a third world poverty-ridden country where they may die. They may end up giving their lives on the mission field. And we hear of, of entire communities converting to the faith. That should give you those good feelings. From the beginning, God's plan was for the people to disperse so that God could be glorified through the nations coming to know him. But the people refused to obey. And this is where the contradiction seemingly comes in. Instead of obeying God by populating the earth that it says in Genesis 10, the people stayed put. They didn't leave. They didn't obey God. They didn't disperse and populate the planet. There are two blatant sins happening in this passage, and both are found in verse 4. First, they plan to build a city. You say, wait, what? A city? How, how can that be sinful? Here's the way. By building a city, they were saying, we're not leaving. We're not going anywhere. What the people were doing was clear to everyone. They were given a command by God to make a sacrifice on their part. They were comfortable. They wanted to stay with their friends. They didn't want to leave, and so they stayed put. They wanted comfort over obedience. In essence, they declared that they knew better than what God did. That's sin number one. They ignored God's commands. They decided to build a city because that would mean that no one would leave. They could thwart God's plans by showing that they were the masters of their own destiny. It wasn't God who had any control over them. It was their decision. Sin number two comes right after they said they would build a tower. Now, I've thought about this throughout this week, and I've tried my best to figure out how in the world or why in the world someone would build a tower. I don't think any of us in this room have ever built a tower. But why would you build one? There's only really two reasons that a city would ever build one. First is the defense. Looking out, the higher you go, the further out you can see. So you're protecting your city by building a tower. You put watchmen up there, and you can be safe. They didn't have to worry about that. But the second thing, the second reason why someone would build a tower is to make a name for themselves. You build a building that's 100 feet higher than another one and you've got the world's tallest building, you put your name on it, you're famous. Now see, I don't think that the people in Babel literally thought that they could build a tower that would extend into heaven. I don't think that they believed that. That's what I thought when I was younger, that they were trying to build a tower so that they could bypass God's rules and get to heaven on their own. See, I wasn't right about their plans, but I was right about their hearts. The people wanted to show the world that they, not God, were the powerful ones. See, their thought line was this, we don't need God, look what we can build. Look at what our engineers have designed, look what our architects have created, look what our master builders have built. We can do this on our own. We don't need God. Well, the question is, does this sound familiar to you? Read through the first 11 chapters of Genesis and you'll see a striking truth that nothing about humanity has changed. Think about it. Do, don't we do the things that show how great we are with very little thought of what brings God glory the most? I'm not even talking about those outside the church. We, we often have cr criticisms and critiques of those who are not believers, but the fact is, is that we're just as guilty as those who are not part of the Christian faith. 
I'm talking about us. How much do we plan and build in our own hearts without regard for what God wants or deserves? See, I don't think we're plotting and planning to rid ourselves of God's authority, but I think we really don't even consider it. We talk about leaving a legacy, but the fact is, is that we are a mist that appears but for a time and then just vanishes. The reality is we aren't building towers. I don't think any of us are. We aren't building buildings. We aren't building cities, but we are building legacies. We aren't building with brick and mortar, but we are building with thoughts and desires. You can do all kinds of great things. You can give money and time and energy. All of that is worth nothing, though, if you are not rooted in the gospel, in the glory of God. And the frightening thing is that claiming to be a Christian doesn't protect us from our flesh leading us into sin. How do I know that? Matthew 7, Jesus says something that should scare us. Listen to this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter in the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We aren't immune from the same sinful thoughts and desires that we see in Genesis 11 in Babel. The same arrogance and irreverence for God and his word is the same sin that is crouching near us, ready to pounce and devour us. And this leads us into verse 5. It's where we see a frightening visit. The verse says this. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. If you've ever worked in a, an office, especially the larger it is, uh, a corporate company or retail store or maybe even in the military, um, you know that sense of dread that comes when they say that the CEO or some high-ranking officer is coming down for a visit. So I worked in retail for many years, and um, we would have, uh, once every few years, we would have the, the, either the owner or the, the president of the company or the big shot CEO or some regional director come down for a visit. And what, for, for an entire week before, we cleaned that building like we've never cleaned before. We were scared. We, we, we really wanted to, to put on a show for this person so they didn't have any complaints, and it was mostly the management telling us to do this, but we still did it anyway. Now, I don't think that's the, the fear that the people had. I think the fear is more of when you're a kid in school and you hear your name on the loudspeaker and it says, come down to the principal's office. This is God saying he's coming down to take a look at what you've done. God came down for a visit. There, there is some humor here, isn't there? God, the creator of all things, comes down to look at this little city and this little tower that the people built to put God in his place. The creator of everything. The creator and sustainer of the entire universe is coming down to look at this little creation. It's like someone who built a 90-story building coming to look at some two-year-old's Lego creation. But this is what sin does. Sin takes something good and it twists it and contorts it and makes it into something hideous. See, your job, your family, your ways to relax, your school, your education, all of those things are good but can quickly become an idol if we're not careful. Because we can allow them to consume us and define who we are. I'm all for building cities. And if you want to build a tower, go build a tower. Those are good things. 
When you visit New York City, most of us will stand and we want a good view of the city skyline because there's something special in that. The creation, the ability for man and humanity to build these giant buildings and to sustain it without falling or flipping over. We want to see that. Those are good. The trophies of human hard work. But what those in Babel did was to take something good, a city and a tower, and they made it into something hideous. Something distorted by their wretched, sinful hearts. And sin does this to us too. Sin takes those things that we should cherish and value, and it turns those things into idols where we worship the creature or the creation rather than the creator. Your family can become an idol to you. Your job can certainly become an idol. Your ministry in the church, now that can become an idol. Sin creeps in, it gets into your life, and it strangles it to the point where it makes it into something hideous, something awful. And what we see in verses 6 through 8 is that God will, however, deal with the sin of humanity. After God comes down to see what the people had built, he gave them different languages that forced them to do what God commanded them to do earlier. Disperse and fill the earth. Something in us sometimes feels like we can hide from God. Now, we, we won't often admit that, but we try to hide our sin from God like we do with our family and friends and our neighbors. Either literally or figuratively, we close the curtains, close the blinds, lock our doors, and we keep everything inside. We make sure that no one can see us, and this is what happened in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned. What did they do? They recognized their nakedness, their sinfulness, and they tried covering themselves. Then when God, when they heard God in the garden, they hid themselves from his presence. It was foolishness then, it's foolishness now. And I want you to hear me clearly, you cannot outrun or hide from God. Maybe some of you are trying to do that now. Something deep inside of your heart, uh, uh, you're trying to hide that. You, you've hid it from everyone else. You, you've done everything that you can to not make yourself known to other people. You cannot hide or outrun God. Maybe you think your sin is not bothering anyone. Your sin's private. It's your issue and yours alone. And while you may think that God has his eyes away from you, he sees everything. You are never alone. Now this should strike a nerve with you. No matter what you do, God knows. He sees what you do and he sees your heart. So it doesn't matter if your exterior is good, if your inside is rotten. Now if you're not a Christian, the promises that God gives to you is that he will deal with your sin. There's no escape from that. It's not pleasant to think about, but the truth is often unpleasant. We don't want to speak of negative things, so we often hope that they just go away, that, that we, if we ignore them, we won't have to deal with them. But wanting something to go away will not make it happen. Sin must be dealt with, and deep down inside of us, most of us would agree with that. We have a sense of right and wrong. Even wicked people have a sense of right and wrong. How do I know that? Do something to them. It'll make them mad. We want justice when we see injustice. We demand that the guilty pay for their crimes. Justice will come. And for the unbeliever, for someone who rejects Christ, it will come in an eternity in hell. 
Hell is a literal place that lasts forever with the perfect and righteous wrath of God being poured out on those who have willingly and knowingly broken God's law. And that's a promise to every single person who dies in their sin. On the one hand, we mourn over this because we don't want anyone to experience this. We don't want anyone to suffer. But on the other hand, we want God to dispense justice. We want evil people to pay for their crimes. And the promise from God is that they will. Sin against a perfect and infinite God deserves perfect and infinite justice. Now, if you haven't recognized the horror of your sin and given your life to Christ, this wrath is awaiting you. God is coming down to see your works. The fate of those in Babel is only a taste, only a taste of what will happen. But for those who die in Christ, and this is speaking to Christians, those who die in Christ, the promise is that God's justice has already been delivered. Christ died so that those who give them their lives would be spared from this terrible fate. God no longer needs to come down to look at our works because God sees the works that Jesus has already done for us. If you are not found to be in Christ, you cannot outrun the wrath of God. But hear me, Christian, if you are a believer, a follower of Christ, if you have turned from your sin and you've given your life to Christ, you cannot outrun the grace of God. No matter how hard you try, you cannot outrun God's wonderful, merciful, loving grace. So God will deal with the sin of all people. He will also glorify himself in everything that he does. Look at verse 9. Therefore its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God's commands were ignored. And yet he still got what he wanted and what he deserved. No matter what you try to do, God will always bring glory to himself. And this is the question that keeps running through my mind. How is God glorified in a tragedy? How can God be glorified, to put it in a phrase of Genesis 11, how can God be glorified in disunity? Because this is what happens in Genesis 11. Disunity. People were all unified against, uh, uh, with a common idea of let's build a city, and then the languages were all confused, and people spread, and all sorts of disunity happens. How is God glorified through that? Aren't we supposed to be unified? It's kind of an idea in Scripture that at least the body of Christ should be unified, and we know that uh, nations are better when they're unified. Isn't unity better than disunity? Well, the fact is there's only one form of unity that really matters, and it's not found in politics. It's not found in how we identify. It's not found in flag-waving patriotism or being a fully devoted fan of your favorite team. That's not where unity comes. Those are all surface things where we voluntarily choose to join with someone else. And so as long as they believe what I believe, we're good. But the minute that they veer away from what I think is right, we're done. That's not unity. True unity stays together. True unity is found where nothing can tear the relationship apart. And you may say that family is that way, but we've seen families forget about the covenants that they've made with one another, haven't we? A husband and a wife splitting up because they just don't love each other anymore. Found someone new. So what brings true unity? It's what you hear every week. It's the gospel. 
This is where God glorifies himself. He shines his glory brightest through his son Jesus, and that is on display in how God brings enemies together, uh, his own enemies as brothers and sisters in his own family. See, we build cities and towers to show how great we are, and God tears them down. But he gives us something better instead. Those in Babel were doing what so many of us do. They recognized a need for something greater, and rather than worshiping God, they idolized themselves. Don't do what they do. Don't continue to build cities and towers in your heart. Find where true unity comes from, and it's only in the gospel. Repent and trust in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful.